Did your siblings, or maybe if you didn't have siblings, maybe cousins, did they ever blame you for something that they did? Isn't it interesting how a lamp or a vase or a thousand other things around the house can break and yet no one takes responsibility for it? Fingers are pointing in all directions but here. Sometimes it's a little humorous how smart children sometimes think they are, right? When it's obvious that they're the ones that did it, like it's not possible for the younger brother. He's not tall enough. He couldn't reach it, couldn't do it. Yet they're sure that they've convinced us. You have to wait until later to laugh about it with your friends because you don't want to encourage lying. Why do they lie about it? Original sin its the answer, right? Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach your kids to lie? They just kind of pick it up on their own, that it's there. But besides that, what's going on? They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to disappoint mom or dad, so they lie about it. Sometimes younger siblings are just an easy scapegoat, too. Why not? Sometimes it's more malicious, and they're mad at them, and they want them in trouble. Might even break the thing to tell on them to get them in trouble. I'm one of 13 kids, so we've been around this a few times. The thing about us is that we have those same impulses. We have the same original sin that's corrupted our whole nature, that it's there. As we've gotten older, we're usually more sophisticated about it, right? It's less obvious. We can hide it better, but it's there just the same. We're all tempted to paint ourselves in a better light than reality, to not take responsibility for things that would make us look bad. We're dishonest to hold up our own reputation, to elevate ourselves. If we're honest, there are times when we'd like to see others pay, too. When we want to see them suffer, when we want to see them go down. God knows our tendency and he knows our temptation to do this. And so he calls us to truth for the good of our neighbors. So hear God's word from Deuteronomy 5.20. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing on in our study of the Ten Commandments this week. And over the summer, we've seen that God's law functions in a few ways. We even talked about it with the catechism earlier as well. One, it serves as a mirror that we hold it up and it shows us our own sin. It shows us our need for forgiveness. Another thing it does is it acts as a curb. It actually restrains sin in society, which is a good thing. And third, it's a guide. It shows us how we're to live as God's people. But it doesn't do the one thing that we often try to make it do. Right? It doesn't give us a chance to save ourselves if we keep it. It doesn't make us acceptable to God if we do well enough. It doesn't make him love us. It's really important as we continue talking about what God requires of us. You might view Christianity this way as this list of things that you have to do or this list of things you can't do. I've been there. It's my childhood. But that's not what Christianity is at all. 
Keeping the law is not how we obtain forgiveness. It's not how we get to heaven. We have to continue to remind ourselves that God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, not while they're in Egypt so that if they keep them, he'll save them. Not so that if they do good enough, he'll love them. It's the opposite. He saves them. He brings them out. He delivers them. He's already established his covenant relationship with them. And then he says, here's how you are to live as my people. Here's how you are to represent me to the world. And so it is with Jesus for us. You don't have to be a good person or do more good than bad so God will forgive your sin. So that he'll restore your relationship with him. So that he'll love you. There's no list of naughty and nice like Santa Claus. All you have to do is acknowledge your need for him and trust that he meets that need. It's only that after he's done everything required for your salvation that he then tells you, and go and sin no more. It's after he's already done this work that he wants us to respond in obedience to what he's done because he loves us, because he has given himself for us. So when we look at the law here, it does show us our sin, as we saw before the confession. It shows us where we do fall short, not to condemn us, but to send us running back to Jesus who took our condemnation on our behalf. But we can also move forward, trying by God's grace and his Holy Spirit at work in us to obey them more and more, to seek to please him and to reflect him into the world. And as we've seen over the summer, these commandments go much deeper than the surface. The literal word-for-word command uh, prohibits kind of the the worst form of each sin, the bare minimum that we're going to do if society is to function. But God cares more about our function, more than about our functioning. He actually cares about our flourishing. He wants things to go well for us. So if we're going to love our neighbors well, which is how Jesus summarizes these last six commands, it goes much deeper than this bare minimum. So as we dive into this ninth commandment, we'll see kind of the content of the command, and then we'll see the character behind the command, and then we're going to look at the command kind of from a different perspective as we finish up. So first, the content of the command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. On the surface, it's talking about bearing legal witness. It's like at a trial. You can't lie on the witness stand. It's what we call perjury today. This is important for any sort of system of justice. It must be based on the truth if it's to be just. False convictions are the opposite of justice. This is especially a big deal in Israel. Back then, they didn't have any of the forensic evidence that we have It was almost exclusively eyewitnesses. And so God says you need two or three to condemn. One is not enough. That's all they had. And often the stakes were higher. As if you read through the Old Testament, there are a few more capital punishments than we have today. And actually witnesses were brought into that too, that if they testified and the person was convicted, they had to cast the first stones. They couldn't say it and walk away. Now on this surface level, like murder, most of us are probably pretty safe. I don't think I've ever even been put under oath for any sort of testimony. 
but if we change the backdrop from a legal courtroom to the court of public opinion, our culpability changes rather quickly. Doesn't it? How quick are we to write or share a social media post that disparages others and brings about no good? How quick are we to repeat rumors that damage reputations of others? In our day and age, this happens so quickly on the internet. Even if it comes out later that an accusation's a lie, the damage has already been done. If you've seen when these happens, when a correction um, or a retraction is made, they're shared on Twitter at like less than 10% the rate of the original post. The damage is done, the lie is believed, the truth never comes out, and the people suffer for it. We see people lose their reputations, their jobs, have people turn on them in an instant because one person can make an accusation and it just spreads like wildfire. James says our tongues are like a wildfire that'll set the blaze. But it goes deeper still than even that, and we understand that. That's why when most of us list this command, we don't say, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. What do we say? Don't lie. Right? And there's reason for that. Lying is listed in other kind of summaries of the Ten Commandments. Stuff like that. But it's not exactly what this commandment means. It's not just lie. It's not, it doesn't have to do with truth and lies in this abstract sense. But about truthfulness for the good of others. So you'll notice in the command itself, there's this relational aspect to it. It's against your neighbor. It affects your relationship with them. It affects the community. So this commandment really sums up the many ways in which we harm one another with our words, especially with false words, but with all of our words. As we remember, as we've talked about these over the past weeks, that where there's a prohibition, it also implies the opposite command, that there's a positive command, that we are not just to not bear false witness against our neighbors, but that we're to be true witnesses for our neighbors. That we're to speak true words that do good for them. So Paul says we're to put away falsehood and speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, letting no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we heard from the catechism before our confession of sin, the different ways that this commandment's kind of fleshed out, right? Never give false testimony against anyone. That one's right there. Twist no one's words. No slander or gossip. Don't join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Avoid lying and deceit. Love the truth. Speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it. Do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. We don't have time to go into all of these. I didn't think you wanted two hours. But I think that we get that we shouldn't give false testimony. I think we get that we should avoid lying and deceit. We get that we should love and speak the truth. We get those things even when we fail to do them. This is one people agree with but then fail to do all the time. Right? But I think there are a couple that we let slide that maybe we're unaware of or grown accustomed to or we haven't thought how this command actually applies to it and the seriousness of it. 
So we're just talk about a couple of these for a second. First, it's gossip. This one's fine, right? Because you're telling the truth. No. When we say unverified or even true things to people that have no business knowing, who have no right to know, it's gossip. Why do we do it? Pride. It builds us up as a person who's in the know, right? We like to know stuff that other people don't know. We like to be the one that gets to share it. We do that so we'll be accepted and people will listen. I mean, we know these pictures of the crowd gathering around. What are they talking about? Let's hear it. Then as soon as it's over, the crowd disperses. Right? We want that. We love it. We like having something that others don't. We like the attention that we get from it. We also do it to disparage the person we're talking about, to bring them down in the same way that we lift ourselves up to make them look bad, to get others to join our side of the argument. You know, I want you on my team against them. It's to divide, not to unite. Or sometimes we do it without this malicious intent, but also without proper love for the one we're sharing. We don't consider whether they'd want this shared or not. Sadly, I think one of the places we gossip is under the guise of prayer. We can put a spiritual spin on sharing what shouldn't be shared if it's a prayer request. Right? Or we pray in front of others without sharing it, and you're like, what are they talking about? What's that going on? I think we probably all experienced that. But what, what's happening is we're causing others to see that person in another light when it's not our business to do that. The good gauge for whether something is gossip or not is to ask yourself, would the person I'm talking about want me to share it if they were sitting here with me right now? If the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't say it. And if we've been sinned against, we actually have a responsibility not to share it, but to actually go to them, to confront them. Matthew 18 says, go to talk about it between the two of you. Then if they don't listen, you bring witnesses. Then if they don't listen, you take it to the church. The quick caveat, I'm not talking about crimes. You should report crimes when they happen. That's not gossip. You don't have to go back to someone who has abused you to talk it through without bringing someone else in. But for the, a lot of these things that we share, we avoid the conflict. Instead of seeking reconciliation, we talk about it and we bring division instead of unity. We have a responsibility to go to them. But not only do we not gossip, we have a responsibility to stop gossip when we can. To not participate in it. It's going to be a hard thing to do to say to our friends who are talking, hey, I think we're starting to gossip. Can we change the subject? People don't like to be told that they're sinning. Right? But I think it's what we're called to do in those situations. Hopefully, if they're your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're willing to listen to that, to hear it, that the Spirit will convict, and it will change. But it's hard. 
And doing it with friends outside of the church is even harder. Right? Where juicy gossip is celebrated. You might have to actually just walk away. Might also give you an opportunity to say why you're doing that. Why you think it's wrong. Gossip has no place among Christians. God saves us and breaks down this dividing wall between us. That we might be united together in love. Members of one another. But gossip only serves to divide and stir up dissension. It is against our neighbors. Gossip is the first one. The second is that we aren't to condemn anyone rashly without a hearing, but are instead to do what we can to guard and advance our neighbor's good name. This is tough in the age of Twitter, where the mob acts fast. There are cases today where we're told that we always have to believe the victim. But I don't think that's biblical. We absolutely should not dismiss them. We should not write them off. We should thoroughly investigate. But to always immediately believe the claims of a victim assumes guilt of the other instead of innocence. It ruins reputations and families before we know if it's even true. We need to put protections and things in place as if the accusations are true. I'm not saying we just throw them to the wolves. We don't want to multiply abuse or things like that, but we cannot rush to condemn without a hearing, without weighing the truth. This is hard, especially in our day of hot takes, where if you don't jump in to immediately condemn someone, you're viewed as condoning whatever the accusations are. But Scripture would call us to listen and carefully consider There's no place for hot takes in the church. It may not go well to jump in and say, they've been accused of this, and if they did that, that's wrong, but we need to wait until the facts have come out. That might be what we need to say at times. I think it's easy to think of cases like this in the public square. We see it all over the media and social media. But it's not just with those other people out there that we're not really connected to. I think we do this with people we know. We impugn their motives. We assume we know why they did something when we don't. We assume the worst about people instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Then we share our thoughts on it with others and damage their reputation and sow division. Isn't this what we do when there's conflict in our marriages or in our workplaces or even here in our church? Can you imagine how different conflicts would work if instead of jumping to all these conclusions, twisting people's words, assuming poor motives, we put the best possible construction on what someone says and does? And if we actually give them the benefit of the doubt, and ask honest, gentle questions instead of hurling accusations? Maybe if we did that, the world would know us by our love for one another. Is there someone here in this room or in your life that you've been doing this with? Go to them. 
Ask gentle, honest questions. Be honest in confessing what you have done. Seek reconciliation. Seek to love them. This command calls us to truth, which isn't always easy to get at. And it calls us to love, to that which is good for our neighbors. Let's do the work to get there. God calls us to be true witnesses for the good of our neighbors because he is the God of truth who works all things together for our good. As with all of the commandments, he calls us to reflect his own character. That's all he's doing is saying, be like me. Both Paul and Samuel tell us that God never lies. As we heard in our assurance of pardon, Jesus tells us that he is the truth. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit whom we now have is the spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth. He's the God of truth. On the contrary, Jesus tells us that the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, we do not reflect God, but the devil. We look like the one who steals, kills, and destroys. But what does God do with us? Where we are tempted to lie, to lift ourselves up, or to tear others down, God knows the truth. He knows our hearts, yet he loves us and has compassion on us. Instead of justly condemning us, He brings himself low in Jesus that we might be forgiven, that we might be lifted up. And he does this by being falsely accused himself. This is how Mark puts it when Jesus is on trial. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Peter tells us that though he was without sin... That these were, in fact, false testimonies. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and that it is by his wounds we have been healed. Jesus was falsely accused and was put to death for our sake that we might be healed. Though we were guilty, he does not condemn us but takes our place. The reality is that apart from Jesus, we are guilty. Maybe not of the accusations people hurl toward us, but of ones like them and often even worse. I know some of you in this room have been falsely accused of things and have suffered greatly for it. I don't want to make light of that. Those things ought not be so. But you can find comfort and solace in a Savior who willingly went through it to the point of death for your sake. 
He has been there. And he is there for you. And others of us, we get accused of stuff, maybe not with as big of consequences, but it kind of stings. Even as I said, jumping in to tell someone they're gossiping, we don't like that. If you're like me, your first instinct is to defend yourself, to say why you're good, why what you're doing is okay, to correct them, to show why they're wrong and you're right. But maybe we should respond more like Jesus. Our first instinct should be actually to ask, does any of what they're saying have merit? Is what they're saying true? If so, confess that. And take it to Jesus in repentance. And if not, we can be honest about the depth of our sin. And say, I might have done, not have done that. But I've done a lot of other things and much worse. But praise God for Jesus. His old Presbyterian pastor, Jack Miller, that would say that. He was accused of things even wrongly. He'd say, you don't know the half of it. God is the God of truth who works all things for the good of his people. And he has made us his witnesses. So if we're to be truthful witnesses for the good of our neighbors, what better way is there than to show them the one who is truth, the one who is goodness? I think we often think as Christians that we need to witness to others about God. You guys think that? hope so, right? We treat witnessing as something we can either do or not do. But I think that's actually looking at it the wrong way. Here's what theologian John Frame says about it. He says, witness is not only what we say, but what we are and do. Scripture does command us to preach, teach, proclaim, and so on, but not to witness. The reason, I think, is that God has already made us witnesses. We have no choice in the matter. He does not command us to be witnesses because we already are. We can witness truly or falsely, but we cannot avoid witnessing. Do you see the difference? If we're in Christ, we are witnessing continually. In everything that we say or do, the question is whether we are representing God truly or falsely. Even in the small details of our lives. And the world is watching. This begs the question, are we willing to be honest about our flaws and our faults? To confess them and praise God for his grace that heals our brokenness. That he makes beauty out of brokenness. Many of you are familiar with Vincent Van Gogh. He cut his ear off debate whether it was the whole thing or just the lobe. I think most recently it says the whole thing. He didn't act as though this didn't happen. He even painted a self-portrait with a bandaged ear. If I were a smarter man, I would have had Adrian put that on the cover, but I didn't, so. Hear what uh, Russ Ramsey writes about Van Gogh. He says, it is hard to render an honest self-portrait if we want to conceal what is unattractive and hide what is broken. We want to appear beautiful. 
But when we do this, we hide what needs redemption. But we trust Christ to redeem. And everything redeemed by Christ becomes beautiful. Van Gogh's self-portrait with bandaged ear indicts us. How willing are we to acknowledge the fact that we have a lot of things in us that aren't right? If I'm drawing the self-portrait dishonestly, pretending I'm okay when I actually need help, I'm concealing from others the fact that I am broken. But my wounds need binding. I need asylum. And if I can't show that honestly, how will anyone ever see Christ in me? Or worse, what sort of Christ will they see? I think he hits the nail on the head. Because we are Christians, we are showing people Christ. But what sort of Christ are we showing them? We can and we must be honest about our brokenness, about our failings, about our need for a great Savior. Or we bear false witness about Christ to the detriment of our neighbors. He is a great Savior, full of mercy and grace toward us. We are fully loved and fully accepted and fully secure in Him. Why do we act like we don't need help? Why do we hide our needs? Why do we deceive others to make ourselves look better than we are? Whenever we do that, we're telling the world, I don't need Jesus. At least not right there. When we're putting others down, true or falsely, we're communicating, I'm better than you. I deserve something you don't. And if I, as a Christian, will look down my nose at you, so will my Christ. But it's not the truth. The truth is that we need him to redeem and restore us completely. And he can and does, if only we will trust in him. The truth is that the depth of my depravity is no shallower than yours. And Christ can redeem you too, if only you will receive him. We must bear true witness for the good of our neighbors, because God has made us his witnesses. And in doing so, we reflect him, and we point them to Jesus, who is truth and goodness and beauty.